this is Memorial Day weekend, and we don't normally deal with holidays for the most part, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. Well, we do a couple. This is a, 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 week, a holiday weekend that's very different and, and quite frankly, painful for me. Um, I, I wanted to do something. I did it during the last service. I kind of fumbled through, and I was surprised with the amount of hands that were raised. Um, but we are a nation that's been at war for a number of years now. I know that the media, the, the, the president, uh, basically we've gone going through a withdrawal process. But regardless of the situation, there is if you're a soldier and you're being shot out, that happens whether or not we're at war. But we are at a time where we've suffered a lot of casualties and um, there are a lot of us who have lost friends, loved ones, family members. And during the last service, what I had asked people to do is if you've lost um, a family member, a friend, an acquaintance um, to, to combat, would you raise your hand? So there's a number. of, And then the, the hard part, which, see, I was not prepared last time, but I'm prepared this time. I have my Kleenex. And uh, is what I wanted to do to, to, to honor the memories. If you raised your hand and you're willing, would you share the name of person that you lost? Some of us, we've lost many people. I'm not going to ask you to go through your list of friends like I want to. Um, but just if you could share about one person, maybe a little about them if you're able to. Uh, I'd be happy to start. The first person, that, the, the, really the, the, the person who had the biggest impact on me that has forever changed my life was my best friend in the SEAL teams, Tom Retzer. Um, on two, June of 2003, he was with SEAL Team 6, and he was basically ambushed and was shot and killed. And he left behind a wife and two sons, and it was um, changed this holiday for me in a lot of ways. Well, there are names. I don't want to pry anybody's arms, but there, there are eyes are welling up, and there are names, and so we know these people. And so what I want to do is I just, uh, before we start, is I want to take a time just to, to pray um, there are hurting people, um, family members left behind. And so I just thought I'd take an opportunity to, to pray uh, for these men and women and their families that are left behind. Uh, Father, we, Lord, we thank you for this, um, this nation in which we live. We thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to come and to, to study your word and to worship you. Lord, this is a privilege that we um, so often take for granted, Lord. Um, Lord, there are many nations around the world where to, to worship you would come at the cost of death. There are people arrested in prisons around the world who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who have gone before us, who have um, made great sacrifices. Uh, Lord, you tell us that it's... Uh, that there's no greater love than a, than a person laying down their life. And you did that for us. And so, Lord, to, to live our life, I know there are many of us that have been touched by the war. Um, Lord, we are in pain for our nation, for the world, um, for those of us who served, and even those of us who didn't serve, we, we long for peace. And we know that it will come in your timing. Maybe not in this world, but in the next one. And so, Father, we... Um, think of those that we know um, that gave all uh, for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for that sacrifice. 
Father, we pray for their, their loved ones, their friends, their family members um, that continue to go on. Lord, we pray for them. There's so much pain and so much hurt. And so, Lord, we know that Christ can heal, Christ can mend, Christ can restore. And so, Father, we pray um, just for our nation and the hurt that's out there as many people remember and reflect um, this day. Lord, we pray that you would just touch um, those that are hurting, Lord, in a special way. Again, Lord, we thank you, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Sorry about that. I uh, didn't mean to blindside anybody. Um, But we are in Esther chapter 5, and we're continuing our story, and I'll pray, and we'll begin. So, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther as it's been uh, unfolding uh, before our eyes over the last number of weeks. Lord, as we read the scriptures today, we ask that your spirit would guide us, that you would illuminate the meaning of this this passage. I pray that you would help me um, to share. Father, I, I ask that you give us um, soft hearts, Lord, for we know that when you... Um, when your word speaks, it often convicts, it encourages, um, it gives us hope. And so, Father, we pray um, that you would just help us as we work through this story today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Esther chapter 5. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition is, and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the prince's and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet 
which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh his wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then joyfully with the king, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So, so the very opening of this passage starts with, now it came about on the third day. Uh, we have to sort of rehash, where, where, where did the story start? How did we, how did we get here? Uh, first and foremost, the, the most difficult thing about Esther is that God is not mentioned anywhere in this book. His name is not written. There's no mention of him. There's no mention of prayer. And so it's a difficult thing as a pastor that wants to encourage people about God. Like, where do we find it in here? And so God is very absent, but in the midst of this story, in the silence and the shadows, it's evident that God is, is moving very clearly. Up to this point, I'm, I'm going to skip a few chapters, and as the story unfolds, we see that Mordecai um, heard of a plot. Mordecai is the cousin of Queen Esther. She had raised uh, to power because the first queen made a mistake. She came up through the ranks, or not really through the ranks, through the beauty pageant. She was selected. Uh, hey, or Mordecai's at the gate. Haman um, is, an, is a man we don't really know much about, but Mordecai had stopped this assassination plot. You would think that he would be advanced. He wasn't advanced. He wasn't promoted. He wasn't even really um, recognized for what he'd done, simply that it was written in the, the Chronicles. Right after this, this guy Haman raises to power, and we're told that he's an Agagite. As he came and went through the gate, all of the people would bow and worship down to him. But Mordecai refused to bow. Uh, Haman didn't notice that this guy wasn't bowing initially. But hey, Mordecai's co-workers were, were noticing, hey, why, why don't you bow down? They began to ask him questions and investigate, why was this guy not bowing down? And through their conversation, their investigation, it was discovered that he wasn't bowing because he was Jewish. And so they, I think with malicious intent, sort of said, well, he's not bowing because he's Jewish. We want to go find out if this is okay. And so they notify Haman, the Agagite, that that Mordecai's not bowing. And if you do a study on these two guys, we see that, uh, that Mordecai descends from the tribe of Benjamin. He has a lineage to the first King Saul. Haman the Agagite came from a, a people group where there's really bad blood between Saul and uh, the Amalekites, who Agag was the king of the um, Amalekites. And so he gets furious. And he wasn't satisfied just killing Mordecai. What he wanted to do was to annihilate all of the Jewish people from the kingdom, which would have been the whole Jewish population. The edict goes out saying that all Jews could be destroyed months down the road. This goes out on Passover. All of the Jewish nation, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're uh, sackcloth and ash. Mordecai's at the king's gate. Esther gets word from, from the people in the palace, hey, your cousin's down front and he's kind of 
acted strange. So she sends him some clothes, thinking that that would cheer him up or something. We don't know exactly why she did it. But it led to this discussion between uh, Esther and Mordecai through sort of a, a guy that was running back and forth. And in last week, it came to a head when Mordecai says, you need to talk to the king. You need to let him know what's doing so that you can save your people. And she says, you're, it's easy for you to say, if a person goes to the king and they're not requested, the standing instruction is that the person is executed and the only way they're spared is if the king decides to raise his scepter to spare them. And she's like, I might be the queen, but the king hasn't asked to see me th- for 30 days. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, Mordecai basically says, don't think that just because you're in your palace and you're hidden from what's going on out here, that you'll be spared from the destruction that's coming to our people. And furthermore, God will raise up, although he didn't say God, I interjected that. He says there will, relief and deliverance will come from another source if you don't stand, but you and your family will be destroyed. And so as they go back and forth, Esther finally says, well, you have all of the Jews out there fast. I'll have all of the maidens fast. And then I'll go to the king against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so that's sort of where our story ended last week. And so we see now in this this story, now it came about on the third day. She's been fasting for three days. The whole nation, I don't know if she was or not, it doesn't really say, but everybody else certainly had Uh, for lack of better terms, like a a burlap potato bag on them. Dust, weeping, mourning, fasting, not eating. It doesn't say it, but all through the Bible when you see fasting, like there's prayer connected, that there's this intercession to God that he would intervene and help. And so on the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms and the king was sitting in his royal throne in the throne room opposite of the entrances to the palace Esther decides there's she knows she wants to go see the king this has been a difficult chapter I if you read through this chapter which we just did you'll see that there's really like no uh, no conclusion really comes to anything it's kind of drawn out. My my personality is like, let's just get ahead already. And so this week I really wrestled with, do I just want to like fly over chapters five and six and get to chapter seven where resolution comes so that I can have some like closure with the story? But the reality is, is the author of this book who was inspired by God to write it through literary form sort of strings us along, draws it out, builds tension. And if you're like me, it's like, hurry up and take some action, move, strike. And it doesn't happen. And so then I've been forced to kind of circle the story and say, well, what what lessons do I see here? The first thing that sort of jumped out at me about Esther, and, and I don't want to read into the text, but I'm doing that, is if I was Esther... It's always a dangerous statement. If I was God or if I was Esther, if I was so-and-so, I would have done it way differently. (laughs) If I was her, if I was a queen, I'd have my burlap on, tears coming down my face, 
angry, running to the king, pointing my finger. Whoa, 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 what's going on? What, what happened? Do you even know what you did the other day? You signed an edict that has everybody being executed. But Esther, in this story, we're going to see this sort of this, like, grace. There's an etiquette. There's, there's a patience. There's sort of classiness about her as she approaches the king that, that I, don't want to, I, I don't want to read too much into this. But as she prepares to go, she goes through sort of like protocol. She gets herself gussied up. She puts on her royal uh, garments. She, she makes her entrance. In the palace, when you would go in, we don't know the details of how it was situated, but from the story, it was clear that when the king was on his throne, he would have a huge, long view of everything. She puts on her robes. She's been fasting. They've been frat fasting. She enters the palace, so she was in his line of sight, but not necessarily in his court. At this point, she's now at risk. And the question, how would he respond? And so in verse 2, we see when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And I, I wish we could see this. If this was like a movie, I see her like getting dressed, like putting everything on. Say, do I look okay, girls? Or how does like what you know, whatever girls go through in the whole dress, the process. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's got to be a term for it, you know. I don't. And I see her sort of making her entrance. She knows that if she goes not requested, basically the, the instruction is to execute whoever comes. It's not requested. And so there she makes her entrance, and I see like her like heart, you know, pounding through her chest. He saw me, and I, do the guys that are there that their job is to kill her? Do they look at the king first? Like, hey, this is this isn't just some Joe Schmo walking in. This is the queen. There, there's great tension in what she's doing. She's violating the law, and the law doesn't. There's no trial. It's just if you enter and you weren't requested. I keep saying off with the head, but I don't know if it's off with the head, or I think off with the head. I hear her, I see her head rolling, but maybe they stabbed her, or like, I see, I don't know how it was supposed to go down, but she was supposed to be executed. And then as she comes in, the king sees her, and he immediately raises his scepter, and she approaches him. And she touches it, following protocol, there's this, there's this level of respect following protocol, etiquette. And there's just a certain grace about her. And this is like the, it's killing me in the story, going so slow. Then we get to verse 3, then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. The king understands that the, the queen just doesn't make her approach. The king understands that if somebody comes without being requested, that they face execution. And so the fact that she comes, this lets the king know that something significant is going on. And he says, what is troubling you? What is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be given to you. He says this a couple times. 
I don't think he at all is, has any intention of offering her half the, the, the kingdom. There's, there's two options here. Nobody really knows. Either it's an idiom. It's like a, it's something we say. I'll give you the whole world. I can't give you the whole world, but I'll say, hey, I'll give you the world, whatever you want. It means whatever I can do, I'll, I'll do for you. Or, or it's, uh, of course, it, it, uh, I've lost the grammar word. There's a grammar word. Uh, hyperbole, I think. No? Is it hyperbole? Meaning, yes. yes my, my English people are there for me. Like, it's like an exaggeration. Hyperbole? Exactly. Okay, I got it. I was like navigating dangerous territory. Like he's just like, exact, whatever you want, I'll give it. Like whatever I can do. He's not saying that if you say to me right now, I want half the kingdom, but that's not what he was saying. And so I read this story. And I'm like, yes, yes. The king got it. He asked the question, whatever you want. She's the queen. She can get whatever she wants. Where I think that story should go, I think we should flip our Bibles over, go to chapter seven, verse three. I think that's where the story should pick right up right now. This is where I think it should happen. If I was writing this story, if I was Esther, then Queen Esther replied, if I found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request, for we have been sold and my people are to be destroyed and killed. That's chapter 7, verse 3. But we're stuck back here in Esther chapter 5, verse 4. Why doesn't she just respond? She has her opening. Seize the day. Seize the moment. He asks you whatever you want. I don't know about you, but I'm, and I'm like, I so force things. The whole gift of patience and waiting for God's time. Yeah, we sing songs. We will wait upon the Lord and stuff like that. I sing it, but it's like I don't do it. <laughs> and this whole wrestling like the, the twice in today's story we're going to see this so she has this opportunity to strike to, to seize the moment to, the king asked her but look what she says in verse four esther said if it pleases the king may the king and haman come this day to the banquet i've prepared for him esther you just invited the you just into dinner like, here you are. You're right with the king. You can speak whatever you want to speak. He's, not only, he, he's asked you, what's troubling you? What's going on? Whatever I can do to help, I'll, I'll help. And then I see Esther, like her, her like nobility, her uh, the, the words I struggle with because I don't have the gift of them, her like patience, her, her discipline. I wrote some down here. Uh, I lost the place. Oh, poise restraint, gracefulness, tact. She's just there and she says, well, I'd like to have you and Haman to a banquet that I've prepared tonight. Now, now in addition to the grace, the poise, the tactfulness, she invites Haman. And so right away, I think that the king would sort of back, back away. It's like, oh, like this isn't just my wife coming, my queen saying, I don't even see you anymore. You work really long, and I'm not trying to be that, but like, you work really long hours, you're out waging war, I haven't seen you in a month, can you just come talk to me and spend some time with me? Like, as soon as she says, I have a banquet and I want Haman to come, the king goes, this isn't just about like quality time with the queen, this is like, there's more going on. But then like from, from Esther's perspective, 
She's already courageous. She's already courageous just by approaching the king without being requested. She has a problem with Haman. And she invites him to the meal to talk about the issue. And and when I see this, I think, well, when I have a problem with somebody, how do I handle it? Well, I talk about everybody who will listen to me about it, except that person. I I will talk about them. I'll gripe about them. I'll complain about them. And the Bible makes it very clear that if you have an issue with somebody, that what you're supposed to do is approach that person. And man, her gut's here. I mean, she like gives me good. I want to go to dinner. I have a dinner and I want you and Haman to come. I got some business I want to talk about. Like this is like, whoa. And between chapter, verse 4 and 5, I'm sorry, the king immediately responded, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. The king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition for it shall be granted to you and what is your request? So, so in these verses, things speed along. She says, I want to go to, I want to have, a, I prepared a banquet. I want to have you and I want to have Haman there. The king says, Somebody go get Haman. We're going to go to a banquet. Haman would have jumped at this. If you'll fast forward to down to verse 11, this is, how, this is the guy that Haman is. He, he comes out of the meeting. He's super happy. He calls together his, fam, his wife and his friends, and he starts talking about um, verse 11. He recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, uh, the number of instances where the king had magnified him He had promoted him above princes and kings that no one but him was allowed to come to the king for the banquet and he was invited to this this banquet with the queen. This guy is all about himself. He is all about himself. So for the king to say, hey, go get Haman. I want to have a banquet with uh, him and Esther. He would have jumped on this. And between verse 5 and 6, we fast forward, we go from the invitation to the end of the meal. There's nothing really said about the meal. In verse 6, it says, as they drank their wine at the banquet, which this would be sort of at the end. And I see the king drinking the wine, then the banquet's almost over. He's like, okay, Esther, we've been here all night. Clearly you're troubled. I, I, I pulled together Haman. The meal's almost over. You haven't said what's bugging you. And again, he says, what's your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And I hear, ding, 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 go, Esther. This is your opportunity. And in verse 7, the English doesn't so much come out as a question. It says, so Esther replied, my my petition and my request is. The Hebrew, not that I'm a Hebrew scholar, but I read somebody who was. (laughs) They they. They say that this would be poised more like a question, like, oh, you want to know what my request is? I think the king, like, yes, Esther, like, I asked you once. Now we had dinner. I asked you again. And her, she says, oh, you want to know my request? Well, this is my request. If I have found favor in the sight of my king, and it pleases the king to grant my petition and to do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow... I will do as the king says. She's like dragging this along. It's killing me. Like I want to just rush ahead. Because this is the, all we're going to see of Esther in this chapter. This is sort of how it ends. She asked him to dinner. They went to dinner. Then she asked for, come to dinner tomorrow night. 
And as I keep looking at this, like, why doesn't she just go for it? Why doesn't she charge? Why doesn't she seize the moment? And I see a woman who has great wisdom, great patience. She's sort of leaving room for God to move. It drives me absolutely crazy because I'm not wired this way. Uh, I grew up surfing. And, and every time I use a surfing illustration in Valley Center, I never get people that understand what I'm talking about. So are there any surfers in here? Like anybody surfed ever? Seen on TV? I had one person last <laughs> year. Like, <laughs> all right. So, so as I'm kind of praying and mulling over like Esther, this image keeps coming to mind. So, so when people are surfing, there's always like a, a row of guys that are out past where the waves are breaking. That that position sort of adjusts on the sides of the surf because a wave will break when, the water, when it reaches water that's half of its depth. That's when it, it peaks over. And so when you're surfing, you want to be sort of in the right spot. If you paddle out too far and a wave comes, you really have to paddle and kick to catch up with the wave to then catch the wave. Or if you wait too far in, the wave will basically crash over you and it'll, it'll like tumble you all over. And the most sweetest position to be when catching a wave is if if you're sitting there and you can see a swell coming, you paddle out just far enough to where the wave will be like cresting over. And there's these moments when you when you get to that spot, all you have to do is turn around and you lay on your board. You don't even have to paddle and you're just it's just perfect timing. Everything's sort of been set up that literally all you have to do is spin around and let the board kind of take off down the front of the wave. Most, you're too far back, or you're too far, like you're trying to force the issue to get in that spot. But every now and again, you get that, like, the perfect spot. And so what I see in the story, the reason I bring that up, is I feel like Esther is trusting in God. She's been fasting. She's, she's use, using restraint from what she wants to do and wants to say to, to allow God to move. And patience is not my gift, but when, when we exercise patience, we're allowing the, the room for God to move. In, in our hearts, like so often when we wait and we're patient, like I found that God will change my outlook of things. I'll see that God will sort of change the, the situation on the other end and there's sort of room so that when the, when the opportunity comes, everything just sort of works out. And I think that's what's happening with Esther. She's just exercising great wisdom. By the time we get to chapter 7, verse 3, spoiler alert, if you guys don't want to know what's going to happen, we're going to see that Haman's going to do all of this silly stuff that by the time she makes her request, he basically set the trap for himself. And he's going to come to his demise because he's on the, he's the antithesis of Esther in this chapter. So if we see grace and poise and restraint on her end, we're introduced to Haman. Or not introduced, he surfaces again in this picture. And so as he leaves the banquet in verse 9, the first banquet, he's on top of the world. He went out that day glad and pleased of heart. I read to you verses 11 through 12 where I I highlighted it. He's going to go home. He's going to invite his wife to come over. He's going to invite his buddies to come over. And he's going to rave about how awesome he is. That, hey, I went to dinner with the queen and the king. They invited me back tomorrow. Look at all my wealth. 
Check out all my sons that I have. Um, he's just awesome. And he's, he's raving about himself. I can't stand people like this. I don't know about you. I said hate during the last service. I tried to like temper it down. Does, can I ask this question? Does anybody here like being around somebody that's just always bragging about himself and like letting you know how great they are? It's annoying. It's funny. There was a book I, I was I couldn't remember it last service, but it's how to win friends and influence people, written by Carnegie was the guy's name. And the cliff notes to this book, his secret to to winning friends and influencing people, his strategy is basically when you go and you meet people, simply ask them about themselves. And so you spend 30 minutes with somebody and all you do is ask them about themselves. They spend 29 minutes sharing all about themselves. Then when you guys go your separate ways, they walk away and they think, man, that guy was a really great guy. Like I just, I really liked him. And, And his point is like, well, he thinks you're a really great guy because he spent the last 30 minutes just talking about himself. And so naturally, he associates that good feeling with you, but he's just talking about himself. And Haman is this guy. He has everything, so much to be thankful for. Uh, and he's letting everybody know the whole, the number of his sons sort of cracks me out. Like history shows that it was like, I think it was 10 sons that he had. He's talking to his wife. Do you think she understands how many sons they had? I would speculate that she probably put more work into having those sons. That's my speculation. But he's like all about him and my sons and all of this stuff. But the part I skipped over is that as he left the palace on top of the world, happy about everything, there's a but in verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. He then invites his friends over. He raves about himself, skipping down to verse 13. He then says, after he talks about all of this awesome stuff and how great he is, verse 13 says, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So for everything that Esther is, Mordecai is like this total opposite person. Haman. Yeah, Haman, Mordecai. Thank you. All these names dug around in my head. So Haman's a total opposite picture of Esther. And as I'm trying to guard myself from like, let's just run ahead to, to chapter 7, verse 3. Why is this story developing? And I don't know if this is a true lesson here, but, but I was trying to get ahead for Western days. And so Thursday afternoon, I'm kind of, talking it over with my wife about what I see. And she's like, well, she just looked at me and said, I'm so happy that this is what God's convicting you of. Like, this is wonderful. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. Because I see myself in Haman. Like, he's a total, like, nitpicker. and, And I don't know if it's type A. He has everything, but he sees this one guy, that one thing becomes like this, burr under his saddle and he can't shake it and that's all he can focus on there's a there's a line in that last song we sang which i love and they, uh it's going to take me a while to, I, if i was more prepared i was the guy that messed with dawn's stuff so sorry about that dawn <laughs> she's not here um 
I wonder if there's two. I wonder if there's two pages. I wonder if that's the problem. No. Oh, there it is. There was a line we sang in that last song by Keith Green, which I think is so awesome. And you all sang it, I think. I sing it, and it brings tears to my eyes because I'm so convicted by it. It says, well, I want to thank you now for being patient with me. Oh, it's so hard to see when my eyes are on me. And, and it, for us who are human, please don't tell Don that I mess with his stuff back there. I, uh, <laughs> we go through life, and, and, and we see, like, everything is about us. That's our, that's our wiring. That's how we're designed. And, and I love that Keith Green says, I want to thank you, but it's so hard to see when my eyes are on me. And Haman is this guy that his eyes are on him. He has so much. He says all of this stuff that he's thankful for. He has many sons. He has a happy family. He has wealth. <coughs> he has the king's acquaintance with the queen. But none of that stuff matters because all he can think about is that stinking Jew who is nobody at the gate that won't bow down to him when he walks by. And I don't know if it's nitpicking, but I, but I see like nitpicking in, in, in me that, that I'll see something and I just, nothing else matters. And all I can think about is that one thing. A few weeks ago, I asked, I, Ben said it was okay to share the story. If I, if I make fun of, well, it's not really, I'm really being made fun of here, but Ben's involved. He's the good guy. He's the Esther. I'm the Haman. And uh, so like three weeks ago, I, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like the screen, the projector, it literally goes all the way, like the projection goes right to the top of the ceiling or right to the top of the wall before the ceiling starts. And if you go through like a starting process of the computer and stuff, like between turning that thing on and turning the computer on, if you, if you do it wrong, <clears throat> um, what will happen is it doesn't go all the way to the ceiling. It goes like an inch short. And if it's like an inch below the ceiling, it drives me crazy. I can't worship. If I see the screen during the worship and it's not like right up there and it's, there's that two-inch gap, I can't sing. I can't focus. All I want to do is how can we like time out everybody. I need to go restart the computer. I need to like fix this. It like consumes me. I've joking about like trying to get the chairs straightened out. And I, I realize that like I think that sometimes our strengths end up being like our detriment. Like they're the things that basically that they're, they're giftings that can be used very well. But, but, but other times they can eat away at us. And I remember that conversation with Ben. I'm like, yeah, see, man, I'm like trying to be real gentle, like deep breath, cleansing breaths. Like, hey, uh. Since you came on staff and now you're like turning on the projectors, there's a certain way we have to do it because, um, <laughs> like, if you don't, there's like there's like an inch gap on the ceiling. And he's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yes." And I know I'm not alone. <laughs> Everybody else is driving them crazy too. And he's like, I don't even notice stuff like that. And I just remember going, I'm so jealous. Like, I wish I didn't notice stuff like that. But I'm a nitpicker. And, and Haman, like, 
all he can think about is, is this guy. It seems so foolish and it's so easy to like, it drives me crazy. And I think that as I've been thinking about this chapter, as I, and I maybe, I know I'm stretching from where we are, but the whole, this nitpicking side of us, I think that most of us nitpickers think that we're, we're, we're helping people. Like, I, I think that we're being helpful. But we're really, like, driving people crazy at best, if not destroying relationships and teams. And I'm saying this to myself. I'm not preaching to all you people. This is, like, the second time I've heard this today, and it hurts just as much the first time. It, like, it, it is a struggle. When I became a pastor and I started realizing there are a lot of nitpickers out here, um, nobody in this church, of course, just me. They, uh, they, uh, I read a book that somebody advised. It's Ministering to Well-Intentioned Dragons. And it was this whole idea that like, the people who think that they're doing the most good are actually creating a lot of like, harm and hurting people. But if you asked them, they would never, like I would think, oh, I'm just doing Ben a favor by telling him he started a computer wrong. And like, it's for them, not for me. And as I read this, the thing that like, like keeps coming, like the, do you want to know my prayer has been this week? Lord, help me to take a chill pill. <laughs> like just to relax. Like it, it, it's okay if things, we don't live in a perfect world. And it's a fine line, like I'll give you, because a bunch of nitpickers came at me already, like, like, Don, when I posted something on Facebook about this, he said, hi, my name's Don, and I'm a nitpicker. And it's like, right on, brother. We had a little meeting afterwards, and, and it came up that there's a time for nitpicking. And so I wanted to sort of, for me, I'm trying to do a little fast. I've probably already broken it. And I'm not sure that you're supposed to fast sin. Like, I think that you're just not supposed to do sin, not fast sin. But I'm trying to, like, fast sort of nitpicking. Like, I don't want to be, like, if somebody didn't ask me for their advice, I'm not going to give it to them. And I'm just going to kind of let things go. Like, I really, when I walked in here today, I'm like, I'm going to be okay if the thing's an inch low. Thankfully, Ben said, the first thing I walked in, he's like, hey, man, it's all right. I'm like, thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> it's not even about what I say, it's about what I, what I think, because your thoughts lead to destruction. Uh, on the night that Jesus died, it's, it's fascinating to me. He, he, he didn't pray that when projectors are invented, that they be projected just right that the sound systems would work just right, that, that, that when a person drives into the church parking lot, that everything would look well, that everybody would be um, happy and get their way. And what, what he prayed in John 17, 21, is that they may be one. He prayed for unity. And I know this is such a deviation from this text, but like, there's really not much here. And I am so like, was convicted as I was like, trying to ponder it and allow the, the literary story unfolds slowly. The whole Haman, if he could just drop. So there's one guy that's not bowing to him. Who cares? They have 10 sons. There's daughters, I'm sure. He's super rich. He, he has all of this stuff. And if he could just let this drop, he would have lived a long, happy life. But, but he says it in verse 13, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time. This week was a difficult week. I, um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a law enforcement chaplain. I, 
I try to go on ride-alongs on a fairly regular basis. And um, Tuesday, I was on a ride-along. And uh, um, I, I try to be diplomatic here, like, because there are some cops, and when they describe Escondido, they, sh they describe it like something. And basically, when you look at the shape of this item, they say there are certain parts of the item that are good, and there are other parts that are, like, bad. And so it's like this long sort of joke that all the calls sort of in Escondido, the majority of them happen in the bad spot. And, and so around 10 o'clock on the radio came out that there was a suicide attempt. And so as we were driving to the suicide attempt, as I, as I like saw the address and where we were going, it sort of dawned on me that I'm like, wow, all the suicide attempt call-outs that we go to, it always seems to be in the good part. And he sort of scratched his head, and he's like, you know, that's, that's fat. Like, that they all the suicide cars are in the nice neighborhoods. And I look at this guy, and, he, and, and this call, the, thankfully the person didn't commit suicide. But, but from one picker, nitpicker to another, it was a nitpicker. And, and, and the nitpicking... The nitpicker wants everything to be so perfect, and, but we live in a world that's not perfect, and so when perfection doesn't exist, it drives us crazy. I almost said amen to get the nitpickers to say amen, but I'll... And reading the story it makes me think of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says, But godliness is actually a mean of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering... With these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare of many foolish and harmful sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First and foremost, this, this, this whole passage is not about money. Like, be clear, there's, there are many who think that the Bible says that, that, that um that money is the root of all evil. Nowhere does the, the money's a tool. Money's just a, it, it's not evil. It's an inert property. What it says here is like this, this love for money, this yearning. And, and he talks about godliness with contentment. Whether Paul writes in Philippians, whether you have much or little, that he's learned the secret to be content, and the contentment is in Christ. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think it was better translated, I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. I, that's how I would translate it. But nobody asked me, so I'm not going to nitpick it. <laughs> ah, see, I messed up again. <laughs> I'm going to start over. My fast is beginning right now. Okay. See, you do, see, that's the whole point of fasting. See, you, you fast, or not the whole point, it's a like. You fast something, and then you see desires sort of like bubble up. And so I say, well, I don't want to, I'm going to fast nitpicking. Then you start catching how many times you do it. I have a computer program that blocks Facebook, so I'll put like a three-hour block. I'm, I'm here to study. And so I turn on the, the, the Facebook blocker, like in all websites that distract me. And I'll be studying, and then my mind will wander because I'm thinking about whatever. And then like without even knowing it, my clicker is clicking for Facebook. And then it comes up to a dead screen, it's like, how did that happen? I didn't even realize that I was cooking for... It just happened. And I think that's sort of what fasting does. Like, well, I, I, want, I don't want to nitpick. I don't want to complain. I don't want to murmur. I don't want to give advice unless I'm asked. And so when I make a thing, it's like, oh, I, 
got to subdue it because it's within me. It's not just what comes out. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. He starts talking about the love of money, this desire for more, that you find your, trying to find your satisfaction in other stuff other than Christ. And it says that some have this love, this desire for more. It's caused them to wander from the faith, faith and it's pierced them with many griefs. As a pastor, as a Christian, I see this all the time. There are people five years ago, a year ago, that they were walking with the Lord. They're doing great. Then something happened. They just sort of wandered away, chasing whatever it is, relationships, money, clothes, whatever. Then they pierced themselves with many griefs. But he says, but flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And this is why I love when we go house building. I love it. You go down to Mexico. You go to a third world country. We have all of our complaints. And you go down there and you see the believers who have nothing, like the clothes on their backs. We build them a house, which is really like a 12 by 16 structure on concrete, no water, no electricity, nothing. And they're so thankful. And we realize how much we're like Haman. That these, these things that are insignificant just get all of this does not satisfy me every time. See, he said, I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate, but you fill in the blank with whatever it is. It's every time I see the chairs aren't straight or the projector or... Well, enough about me. But look where it leads him. Verse 14, Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high, that's about 75 feet, made, and in the morning asked the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. He's also hanging around people with, like, giving horrible advice. Oh, just make this 75 foot. That, 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 the, the, that number is like astronomical. That's like a seven-story building. That's not how they, so there's a lot of speculation. I don't, but it's this big one. And the point was, let's make this big gallows. Let's impale Mordecai in the morning on this so the whole town can see. You stand against Haman, that's what's going to happen to you. That'll make you feel big. That you walk through the town, you see dead Mordecai's body and that all of the Jews that are going to be exterminated a few months down the road, this will be great. great. Haman says, that's outstanding. And see, between this chapter and the next chapter, we're going to see that God's going to work through insomnia. The king's not going to be able to sleep, and all of a sudden he's going to learn about Mordecai. Well, we'll get there next week. But, but, but all of this story, this, this plot is developing first because God is God. Like, he's faithful. He's not going to let his his people who he's promised the Messiah to come through. He's not going to let them be exterminated by a a mad king or a mad man that are throughout history that the Jews have been often are on the chopping block by one nation or another nation. And so Esther goes and she has poise. She has graciousness, patience. She allows God to move in the situation. And so by the time we get to chapter 7, it's like she's just turning around on her board for none of you who surf. And it's like she's going to catch off on that, take off on that wave. 
And it's because everything's been set up because she, I don't know how it would have turned out if she would just rushed in things. And I hope that all of us can learn, or I'm speaking to myself, that, that there's so much wisdom in, in patience, biting your tongue, praying, letting God to sort of allow the situation to work itself out. And it's, it's amazing to me how he changes my heart, how he changes others, how the circumstance always works out. And then we see Haman, this this rash, hot-tempered, lack-of-content man who unfortunately in this story I so identify with. And I think the way we remedy this is by turning to Christ. And this isn't like, oh, if you're not a Christian, that you got all these troubles and we Christians have it all figured out. I'm talking to Christians. We Christians know how to complain and vent and, and, and vent our rashness and anger. We need to learn from Esther. Lean on God, trust him. I don't know what situation you're going through, but I know that he's working. He, he, I guarantee he's probably not working as fast as you want him to work, but he's working. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this story. As difficult it is for me to, to, to preach through it and to teach it and to learn from it, I thank you for the lessons that you're teaching me personally. I, I hope that others are learning as well. And Father, I thank you for this example of Esther, who is this character of courage, graciousness, patience of, of waiting upon you. Father, I pray that you would nurture in my heart those characteristics that are truly a product of the Spirit, Lord, that we would see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And Father, as I look at Haman and I'm confronted with many of my own personal struggles and just shortcomings and sinful nature, Father, I pray, as I've been praying all week, that you'd help me to take a chill pill and that I just trust in you and allow you to work. And that's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.